Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the fun science stories we covered over the week was the new four-legged robot dog that, thanks to artificial intelligence, can run faster, operate with more efficiency, and even get back up after it's been kicked down. There's tons of funny videos, well, I think they're funny, of the dog being kicked down and then he wiggles his little legs and he gets back up. Um, This dog is special not only because it learned with AI, but also through computer simulations on a desktop, learning 1,000 times faster than in the real world. We spoke to Rob Verger. He's an assistant tech editor at Popular Science for more on Animal, the robot dog. This robot is called Animal. And uh, weighs about 73 pounds, and researchers in Switzerland at a place called the Robotic Systems Laboratory have programmed it to do these things. And they really did it through a combination of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and time in a simulator. And the result is that this robot dog could do everything that they wanted it to do, but just better after the artificial intelligence training kind of kicked in. So let's say they wanted it to run faster than it could run before. They use machine learning and AI and let the robot kind of figure out in a simulator on a desktop how to do those things. and then transferred those skills or that learning back into the robot. So it's almost like in the Matrix when Neo <laughs> downloads those instructions about how to fly a helicopter. It's like that happened with the robot dog. Tell us a little bit about that simulation learning, because that's one of the important parts uh, with the artificial intelligence. Usually you have to manually teach it a set of rules. This happens, then this is how you would react to it. But the simulation learning makes it so much faster. As you said, they don't have to do the real world actions on it, it all happens on the computer and then they just download it into the little robot dog's brain. Exactly. If you wanted to program, let's say a robot dog, how to get up after it's been kicked over and it's kind of on the ground and its limbs are everywhere and its joints are in, uh, you know, they could be in a thousand different positions to program it, how to get back up after that, you know, first do this, then do that in a kind of traditional kind of old school programming approach, that would be very difficult. And they say that before the AI training, the dog couldn't get up in situations like that. But after the AI training, when it was learning how to do that stuff in simulation, and the simulation, by the way, is around a thousand times faster than the real world. After it had learned how to do all that in simulation and they transferred the skills back into the actual physical robot, then it could get up something like 98 or even 100% of the time. So the AI training, which was basically a neural network in the simulator on the desktop, figuring out how to get up in those situations was a much faster and more effective way for this robot to learn as opposed to being manually taught how to learn. The science and engineering of these things are amazing. I mean, they've taught this little robot dog how to open a door. I mean, it has like a special arm when it's going to do that, but they've taught it how to open a door. What do they think are going to be the real world applications for something like this? We see videos from places like Boston Dynamics with their spot mini dogs with doing things like opening doors. And it's, it's very actually kind of scary or exciting, depending on how you feel about robotics. It, it's a little it's a little bit of both. It's like the raptor learning how to open the door or something. You, know, you never know what it's capable after it learns something. Absolutely. I'm still torn between, you know, is this robot dog cute or could it be scary? 
Um, but you asked about what are the real-world applications of something like this. And I asked the researcher who did this AI simulation programming for this robot in Switzerland. And he was saying that it could be useful in situations like, let's say you want to inspect an oil and gas facility. And that's the kind of thing that people use drones for now. But you could also imagine a four-legged dog like this that's very mobile and maybe very quick would be a good thing to send into like a disaster situation or to inspect some sort of industrial setting that could be possibly dangerous for humans. So they talk about real-world applications like that, but I also get the sense that when researchers are doing work like this now, they're just really kind of pushing the envelope to see what can we do with AI and machine learning to make more effective robots, robots that can do cooler things and learn faster. So it's almost like they're programming it now and working on it now, and I feel like the real-world applications will be the thing that happens after the research. You know, I've seen a lot of different articles about what they can do and what the future holds for them. With the four legs, it does make it very nimble. It can tackle a bunch of different environments, steps, maybe uneven terrains. There's all sorts of startups that are working on food delivery. Right now they have cute little robots with faces and big wheels on them. But I've also seen these robot dogs mentioned in something like that because it can navigate around people and uh, up and down the curbs and things like that. Right. And I think it's an exciting time for robotics and AI and, you know, autonomous vehicles. We see researchers using all these different robotics and autonomous technologies and AI to really push the field forward and make robots that can hopefully make our lives a little bit better as opposed to, you know, leading some sort of robot rebellion in the future. And the speed at which it's happening. I mean, I think that's why the simulation learning is so important on top of the normal neural networks and the artificial intelligence intelligence that we're currently working with, the simulation learning helps it go so much faster, so much cheaper, and more companies can kind of get on board with this stuff. So exactly how you said it, it's going to be big for robotics probably this year and the next few years coming up. Right. And I talked to an expert at Carnegie Mellon University who works a lot on robots. And he said that what this team in Switzerland did was they made robot programming cheaper and more efficient. You know, he's saying that right now, if you want to program a robot to do something very complicated, like get up after a fall, you need to hire a talented programmer who's not only good at writing writing code, but also good at understanding how robots work. And so a human programs all those rules. But, you know, in this case, the robot learned through AI and the neural networks, as you said, on this desktop how to do it. And so he said, basically, you know, before you kind of needed almost robot whisperers to program them. And now through AI and the simulation technique, the robot can learn on its own in the simulator how to do these complicated things. And then you just take those skills and transfer them over onto the physical bot. The videos are pretty cool. I recommend everybody go and check them out. It is kind of fun to see somebody kick over the robot dog and then it get back up. They've done other tests where they put this very same animal robot dog into a sewer in Switzerland so he can learn how to navigate in the dark and in uh, you know wet terrain. So it's very, very interesting. Rob Verger, assistant tech editor for Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. My favorite story of the week has to be that of the Fire Festival documentaries that were released both on Hulu and Netflix. This thing was billed as a luxury music experience that was going to happen on Pablo Escobar's former island, uh, complete with beautiful Instagram models. It all came crashing down. It was all a fraud. This was put on by Billy McFarland and his partner in crime, Ja Rule, rap, the rapper. It all fell apart. They wanted to put on this extravagant thing on in six months. Not enough time to bring it all together. We spoke to Kate Talbot. She's a contributor to Forbes about what the fire festivals reveal about millennials and social media influencers. 
It only took 400 social media influencers to get this whole thing started. Just the amount of craziness that went into either executing it or lack of execution. And then what happened when the actual concert goers were there and how much mayhem was happening. The Lord of the Flies, especially on the Netflix documentary, when they were just grabbing mattresses and <laughs> right. there was all for themselves and some jerks were just peeing on the mattresses themselves. So yeah, that I don't know to me... <laughs> I don't know what that accomplishes right there at all. <laughs> One of the things that struck me was just how complete a lot of the people that were helping organize this thing, they saw it crashing from the beginning and they paint the picture in both documentaries that they were putting out little fires as they'd go and, uh, you know, solving one problem and moving on to the next. And everybody kind of just said, you know, Billy had this confidence that things would get done and everybody just kind of kept going with it until it was the last possible second. And then they realized, oh, crap, we're screwed on this whole thing. Totally. And I think it just goes to the fact of how confident and how much that people really engaged with Billy and kept going with him. And even after he got arrested and all this stuff went on, he still got people to work with him on that VIP ticketing thing. So he must have some kind of charm that people just listen to him, want to work with him and invest in him. So that's what happened. And it's kind of a crazy story that keeps on going. There was a lot of schadenfreude that played out because people were watching this here in the States and realizing, oh man, all these rich millennials pouring so much money, ha ha ha, they're going through hell over there. But one of the things that really gets lost in there and to Netflix's credit, they made it a, a central part of it was a lot of those workers there in the Bahamas never got paid. A lot of those vendors got stiff and the poor woman, Marianne Roll, who was the owner of one of the food places out there, she had to end up paying over $50,000 of her own savings to the workers that were working with her that never got paid. Now they made a GoFundMe. I think there's $185,000 in there that's going to go towards her, which is great. But at the time, I mean, they put her out really badly in, through all that. That was kind of the silver lining of these documentaries is that we as viewers got to see a lot more storytelling from all different angles, not just what we saw on Twitter during that weekend. And it was really like the one uplifting story is that so many people did contribute to the GoFundMe. And when you go on the GoFundMe, you know, there's people sending $5, $10, you know, really anything that they can just because they put so much heart and soul, all those workers in the Bahamas, and they got totally screwed. And I think that at least now we as viewers it like can help out and do that and it's great to see that she you know has her savings back but again if it weren't for these documentaries we wouldn't even have known about them for wire fraud mail fraud falsified investment documents and all that stuff billy mcfarland ended up getting six years in federal prison he's currently serving now the article you wrote for forbes took a broader picture about what these documentaries really reveal about millennials and i thought it was a great take on there starting off with the Instagram influencer campaign, which was really central to this, there was 400 in-demand influencers who put stuff up on their Instagrams, and that's all it took to create the entire buzz for everybody to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to want to be here. It's incredible. And I think it really speaks to how we are as a society right now. You know, everybody's just scrolling through their Instagram. And the way that they did it, too, is that they had these orange tiles and all these Instagram influencers, you know, with millions of followers just had this tile. So here we are just wherever we are in America, just seeing a tile and wanting to be part of this video. And they created this whole campaign off of an illusion from, you know, a 10 minute video of influencers running on the beach, there's pigs, there's all this stuff that's happening and everybody wants to be part of it. And I thought that was so central to who we are and especially millennial generation of just really consuming this Instagram content and wanting to be part of that concert going experience. 
Yeah, these influencer campaigns are so important. There's not a major media company now that doesn't have some type of influencer campaign. It just shows how important that is. The other thing that the that they did uh, was, you know, these em- emphasis on exclusive experiences, really playing up that FOMO, uh, the fear of missing out. Like you need to be here so you can have the best Instagram pictures that your friends are never going to have. This Instagram culture has really created this experiences that have to be exclusive that you have to go to to get that perfect shot. I think, you know, when everybody goes to Coachella, everybody goes in front of that big Ferris wheel and that's the shot that people get. And on that point too, the content, the capturing of video, constant content, this was like part of the downfall of Billy McFarland and the fire festival. Cause they uh, documented everything from the beginning all the way to the end. And after even his next fraudulent scheme that he started doing was caught on video, but that's how we got to see what happened there. You know, content from people that were there, the content that he was recording himself. And I mean, it's just shows that everybody's doing this. This is what the next level of media is, is the constant plugged in. You could remember that weekend of Fire Festival on Twitter. It was trending all the time. You know, the cheese sandwich, I think, is a quintessential photo. For sure. I think it was in the Netflix version where they said you had all these influencers with millions and millions of followers and it generated this buzz. But in the end, it just took this one kid with a few thousand. I don't know how many followers he had to bring the whole thing down. And it was that cheese sandwich was the picture that did it. Kate Talbot, contributor to Forbes. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Oscar nominations came down this week, and as usual, there was some surprises and there were some snubs. Netflix has changed the movie game and long fought for recognition, and now they claim the best picture nomination with Roma, Black Panther, Spike Lee, Bradley Cooper made headlines. Bradley Cooper, everybody is feeling bad for him because he didn't get the nomination for best director for A Star is Born. For a breakdown, we spoke to Jason Nathanson of ABC News. And we start off by talking about how important these awards shows still actually are. Well, I mean, I think they're still very important. Yes, the ratings are down for the Oscars, but in terms of live telecast, things that we all get together and watch have that kind of communal feel. It's the most watched thing aside from football. It's not so much because of political controversies. I think that people aren't watching these things anymore. It's just the way we watch TV and we watch things in general has changed. We watch a lot more streaming things. We watch things alone. TV viewers as a whole is down overall. So award shows aren't as important as they once were, but they're still a thing where we all kind of come together and a good percentage of the country watches. It might be 10 to 15% of the country, but there still are millions and millions of people who watch these shows. The awards show is going to be on February 24th. The last time I heard there was no host yet. Uh, We all know the situation that happened with Kevin Hart. Is that still the case? No host? That is still the case. We have no host and I don't think we're going to at this point unless some miracle happens or somebody had suggested to me earlier today that perhaps Kevin Hart actually is going to host and it's going to be a big surprise. He'll come out (laughs) on stage on Oscar night. I don't think that that's going to happen. I don't think so either. He was pretty adamant about not wanting to anymore. You know, I think a lot's been made about the host, especially over the past couple months. I don't think people go, oh, I'm going to watch the Oscar because Kevin Hart's hosting or Jimmy Kimmel's hosting or Dave Chappelle or Chris Rock or, you know, Bob Hope. It's it's really more about the movies. And if there's movies people know and people are interested in, they're going to watch the Oscars. The host is good and the host can help with things. The, the host gets a lot of blame for the ratings and blame for the show. I don't think that's necessarily fair or accurate. Let's get into some of the nominations. Roma and Netflix, one of the big winners there. Uh, Black Panther hit it pretty big. 
big. Spike Lee with his first nomination for Best Director. What's the surprises? What are the snubs? One of the big stories, I think, coming out of the Oscars is the fact that Netflix did so well. With Roma, it's the first picture for Netflix that's ever been nominated for Best Picture, which is a big kind of sea change. There have been other films in the past from streaming services that have been nominated, but this is the first for Netflix. And to get 10 nominations is a very big deal. But it's not only the 10 nominations. It also got three nominations for The Ballad of Buster Scrubs and two more nominations for short documentaries. Netflix got 15 nominations overall. And by my count, if my if my math is right, I'm not that good at math, <laughs> Disney got 16 nominations. Wow. It's undeniable to say that Netflix has not changed the game. And it's funny because they have no official box office results for Roma. And, uh, you know, there was all sorts of resistance to even letting them be nominated for these things because they weren't released in that traditional way. Even AMC and Regal, who uh, once all the Oscar noms come out, they do these showcases where they play all of the best picture nominees just so people can catch up and whatnot. They're still refusing to play Roma in their theaters because they weren't officially licensed that way. Yeah. And it's funny because I asked Alfonso Cuaron, I said, do you know how many people are actually watching your movie on Netflix? And this is what he told me. They just smile at me and they, they, they say that they are very, very, very happy. And, and they say, congratulations, you made a big, big, big mainstream movie. But they don't let him know how many people actually saw it. They, they're not telling the guy who made the yeah. film how many people actually watched his film. So directors and people who make movies are going to have to get comfortable with that. And they're going to have to get comfortable with the fact that, you know what, box office, it's not going to really matter that much. Okay, what about Bradley Cooper? Because I know a lot of people were really sad for him. A Star is Born, it's a great movie. He got the nomination for lead actor there, but the big one, best director, he did not get. Yeah, and we're all crying for Bradley Cooper because his movie <laughs> only got eight nominations and he got a best actor nomination. Right. And yeah, if you make the movie, you really want to get that best director nomination, especially if you're a first-time director. That is absolutely validation in this industry that you've done something right. But Spike Lee just got his first best director nomination. And Spike Lee's been in the game how long now? 40 years or something that I've seen. Exactly. So Bradley Cooper can, he, he can take a little solace in the fact that, you know, it took Spike Lee that long. It's going to take him a little long. But a case can be made for the fact that he did get snubbed because his film got eight nominations. He directed himself to a Best Actor nomination. He directed Lady Gaga to a Best Actress nomination. And this is the first film that she's ever been in. Right. So that's pretty strong evidence that you are a good director. But this was just one of those years where you have a lot of strong directors. Yeah, he should be proud either way. Black Panther, I know, was a huge hit in the box office. And it's the first superhero movie ever nominated also for Best Picture. What's cool about that is this is exactly what the Academy wanted to do when 10 years ago they changed the number of nominations from five nominations to 10 nominations. And that was to get more of these movies that people have actually seen and liked into the, and it's not just a, you know, also ran nomination. Critics loved it when it, when it came out, it was critically acclaimed, but also people saw it. It was the, the highest grossing film of last year made over $700 million in the U S which is just huge. So when you go to watch the Oscars, maybe you haven't seen Roma, maybe you haven't seen the favorite, Chances are most people have not, or some of the other films that have been nominated, but most people will have seen Black Panther. Most people will have seen A Star is Born, because that made over $200 million, and most people will have seen Bohemian Rhapsody, which also made a ton of money as well. Jason Nathanson, ABC News Entertainment Correspondent, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Take care. 
All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. We'll be right back.